Welcome to Find Flow, a podcast on the ebb and flow of the IT operations management scene. We take a deep dive into the latest developments on IT operations management, IT service management, and AI ops. Find Flow episodes are on iTunes and Spotify, and remember to subscribe. I'm your host, Sean McDermott, and this is Find Flow. Welcome, everyone. I'm your host, Sean McDermott. And uh, this season, as I've talked about before, we're focusing on vendors and what the vendors are doing. And we're interviewing uh, lots of different vendors in this space. And today, uh, we have the honor of having Dynatrace on. So I wanted to welcome uh, Russell Wilkinson to, uh, to, the, to the podcast. Russell, welcome. Thank you, Sean. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Thank you. Um, so, Russell, tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll jump into it. Uh, yeah. So, um, you know, Russell Wilkinson, based in Memphis, Tennessee, not a typical place you think of uh, IT people sitting unless they're tied to one of the uh, uh, AutoZone or FedEx. But uh, I've been in the industry now for uh, much longer than I care to admit since the early 90s, was with Novell, uh, VMware in the very, very early days. Um, most recently been on board with Dynatrace here for the last two and a half years, which has been an amazing journey going from just pure infrastructure on into the um, the APM world, but really more around intelligent observability here the last couple of years. Great. So you've been around the block for a long time. I, I like Sam Network 286 <laughs> old, not punch card old. So <laughs> I think and we I, just I think lost I half the audience anyways. <laughs> Yeah, I think I did punch card in college, and then I did 286. Uh, uh, like my first, my first com- uh, real computer. I, I actually brought up the uh, first internet connection for the civilian government uh, at the Department of Justice, and I ran it on a, uh, I ran it on a upgraded 486. Right, I bought it. I bought a 386, and they gave me a processor. They gave me an upgrade a couple months later, and it was literally running under my desk on Sco Unix. So. Um, I, I'm, I'm of that generation. Yeah. And we probably just lost half the audience on that one. So, but anyways, everyone come back. We're going to talk about some really cool stuff around AI ops. So let's talk about, um, so I'd like to start this off with kind of your opinion on things. I know Dynatrace has been around for 16 years, I think something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, so, but, but made a pretty significant pivot about eight years ago. So before we get into that, you know, give me your opinion. I mean, obviously, you're working in the AI ops space. You've been doing this for two and a half years. You've come out of the infrastructure. You know how complicated this thing. You kind of got into VMware and, and virtualization um, and, and then Cisco and got to see the big machine. So tell me about, like, your opinion on AI ops, like how we got to where we are today, a little bit of history, and where you think we are right now in this kind of AI ops evolution. Yeah, so, so there's there's multiple facets on that. The the biggest right now is uh, one of the ways I've you know when I first joined and we were kind of getting our little indoctrination on what we were doing around AIOps was um, obviously it's impacting everything we do, everything from autonomous cars to you know and in, in, in intelligence in uh, your video streaming platforms about predicting what shows you want to watch for good or bad, et cetera. Uh, in this situation, you know. Uh, it's about turning around and taking massive amounts of data and processing it to a very specific outcome without any necessary 
predisposed notions of what that outcome is going to happen to be, whether that's turning around and going, hey, I need to get from here to just down the road and around the corner and to some destination and having, you know, that data set then feed that information into the car to make the decisions to get there. Or when it comes to what we are coming out of is from APM into intelligent observability, it's about understanding a dynamic application architecture to then turn around and present back information to you that's pertinent to what you need to know, whether that's how the performance is, whether business analytics, et cetera, some of the things we'll kind of focus in on a little bit later on. Good. So, um, so what are the primary use cases that you guys are seeing right now around AI ops as you know, you deploy Dynatrace inside of your customers? So for us, it's about one, um, just understanding your applications, period. Um, you know, especially with legacy applications, with new applications, with legacy applications, a lot of the intellectual property and in organizations might have gone, uh, and, and the content uh, that you had as far as understanding, you know, what was installed where. You know, how do you re get, get that back, make it fresh again? Uh, or you're dealing with new application architectures that are coming to market that are dynamically and ever are dynamic and ever changing. And so trying to keep up with that rapidity of change, whether that's new technologies, whether that's just reswizzling of what the architecture looks like on a given to given day to day basis based on loads and other parameters, uh, being able to make sense of that data set. And then from that, then, of course, business outcomes from that, everything from understanding it from an APM umbrella, from application performance to digital business analytics to understand how the applications are being used and uh, into uh, uh, giving data to different teams so that they can all make use of that platform. Yeah, I, I think you, you bring up an interesting um point that we don't talk about enough and I think kind of gets glossed over a little bit and that's this idea of legacy applications, right? Because when you get mm -hmm. into uh, very large enterprises, I mean, you've got you've got applications running on legacy hardware, mainframes, things like that, that they just can't get off of, right? And they can't migrate these. The cost of migrating to the cloud is just too great. And um, so it's, it's, it's good to be able to, you know, I mean, you want to be working with all this latest technology and microservices and things like that. But there is a there are a lot of customers out there, especially in the Fortune 500, uh, that I assume that you guys you know do a lot of work with, um, that really are looking at these legacy applications and and how to manage them in a more modern way. Yeah, it's it's uh, helping optimize those too. I mean, you look at the financial services sector and the sheer amount of of you know IBM Big Iron that still happens to sit in there. That's it's it's fundamental to a lot of what they're doing. They're modernizing the user experience and building new application sets to engage this new kind of set of users that are coming on board, you know, the, uh, my daughter, I, I think I've drug her into a bank one time in her entire life. And that was to sign up for a checking account. And even she felt like that was completely, uh, um, uh, plebeian and manual. And she's like, let dad, let's just go online. I'm like, no, we're going to do it old school on this one. But the point is, is that, you know, those backend systems on those types of, of, of organizations and those type of industry sectors aren't going away anytime soon. But they still need to be leveraged in a new and modern way for these new application sets that are coming to market. Absolutely. So so let's shift a little bit. So where do you see AI ops going in the next, say, three to five years? 
for the next three to five years, it's going to continue to build these engines to bring on newer and newer capabilities in their area of focus. Um, you know, if, if you've been following Tesla, and I, and I apologize, I completely forget what the uh, autonomous car levels happen to be as far as fully autonomous versus it just knows when to brake because there's something in front of you. Um, it's turning around then building additional use cases on that. When it comes to intelligent observability, it's starting with just um, one set of outcomes and then figuring out how we can leverage that data or build intelligence into the data that's been gathered and, and discerning it for other outcomes. Um, and what would that's going to then turn around and drive is, you know, without going full you know, uh, Terminator Skynet on us. It, it's going to be kind of that first iterations of Skynet, kind of that that those self-thinking environments uh, that as much as we talk about automation now, it's going to be turning around and having what few manual steps we're having to drive today, even turning around and removing your requirements to have those those uh, those manual processes done. Uh, like for example, today there's there's agents we have to put out there. There's there if we're talking specifically around our platform, there's uh, open source capabilities that we can ingest. There's still manual stitching together that has to be done. It's just at the very beginning of that. Um, it's going to turn around and being able to automatically discover those and automatically go ahead and and have this uh, code start to integrate into more and more platforms. Yeah, interesting. Good. All right. So well, how about we uh, shift gears and talk about Dynatrace for a little bit? Excellent, as I have my, Mike Rubio, uh, my, my Rubio moment here with my coffee. <laughs> yeah, no problem. No problem. <laughs> we all need our coffee. All right. So um, so I have some familiar with, with Dynatrace. We have a number of customers that are using Dynatrace, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, my consulting company has actually done work with Dynatrace. Uh, smarter people know a lot more than I do. But so uh, one of the things I hear a lot around with with um, Dynatrace and what you guys talk about is this kind of deterministic AI engine. So let's let's talk a little bit about that. Explain to me what that is and, and why that matters. So when, it, when you think about AI ops, there's really two schools of approach. Um, you know, there's, there's a deterministic AI engine, and then there's a machine learning uh, capability. And so when you look at machine learning, it's taking all these disparate data sets and trying to turn around and discern from them using an analysis engine on the, the these these disparate things being tied together. The problem there is that one, they take time. Uh, you know, you, you have to build baselines. And if you're dealing with a dynamic environment, if you're dealing with serverless functions, how can you build a baseline on a function that's only invoked once every so often? It, you're not getting enough of a data set to learn anything about it historically, uh, to build that baseline off of, et cetera. Uh, also, those data sets have to be rebuilt time and time again for the AI engine to turn around and, and do what it's trying to do, which is give, um, functional information back to the to the customer. With a deterministic AI engine, it's working with raw data and it's working uh, from that. So it doesn't need somebody else turning around and building a baseline for it and then feeding it into there and then it looks at it. It's just looking at the raw data and we typically break that down into things like metrics, logs, traces, um, and a few other data sets on as well. And then analyzing that in its format 
And from that, that's when we can then build, you know, if we're looking at it from a APM perspective, that's where we can do fault tree analysis. And so that way, that's what allows us to turn around and get to root cause analysis. One, to understand not just a problem, but the full extent of the problem, including who is affected by it. But it's also turning around and giving us that root cause, um, not technical root cause, but foundational root cause or functional root cause saying, okay, yes, it was a CPU spike that ultimately caused these slow service requests. But based on the analysis that we did across the entire fault tree, what we discovered was, oh, you had some updated code in this one service that once that code there specifically is what caused this cascading set of effects to ultimately impact your end users. So interesting. So how do you guys work with third-party data, right? Or, or, or So a big part of a root cause analysis, I'm just kind of jumping off that last point you made, right? This, sure. this kind of functional root cause. So looking at root cause, you've got to understand how these different applications uh, work together, what's the underlying infrastructure, the connectivity of the infrastructure, you know, the microservices that are running, um, mm -hmm. How do you piece all that together? Are you guys doing your own discovery or are you working with third-party um, CMDBs and topology engines? How does that work? So um, actually all of the above, really. So we have various ways of collecting the data sets that we happen to need. Of course, you know, in, in a perfect world, we put the one agent everywhere, but we realize, one, there's too many touch points that we don't have control of. You have platforms as a service that you don't get access to that underlying uh, infrastructure. There's uh, applications as a service, um, you know, vendors like uh, ServiceNow, Salesforce, et cetera, that obviously we, they're not going to let us turn around an instrument, but they provide those data sets. And these data sets can come in via their either extrapolate, be extracted via API calls or uh, there's open source data sets. For example, like OpenTelemetry's got a vast amount of, um, of, of, of speed behind it or velocity or momentum behind it. And in fact, we're one of the key contributors to the OpenTelemetry uh, workforce. So that way we can pull that data in natively and stitch it into our entity model. So really that's, that's what you're kind of driving at is what we call an entity model which is the objects are going to be your infrastructure, your services, your processes, uh, your, your, your application front ends. And, you know, by looking at those transactions as they flew through the environment, your AI engine in this case, what we affectionately call Davis, can dynamically build out what that relationship map looks like. Um, and so that's how we turn around and take those data sets and stitch them back in. So using our entity model, um, the one offshoot of that is at that point, then it comes into the broader ecosystem around CMDB is who drives that content. And, uh, so the, the content of a CMDB can be driven by us or it can be driven by a third part by whoever owns that CMDB, whoever that solution happens to be. And then we can ingest information back from them and stitch it back to our entity model. Gotcha. So, uh, so did I hear you correctly? You you call your AI engine Davis? <laughs> yeah, Davis. And uh, yes, uh, she actually. Um, oh, it's a uh, she. This predates me a bit. It's a she. It, it, well, I mean, all, all the the smartest people are all women. That's just because my wife's in the other room. I want to make sure she hears me say that. Um, but um, it's uh, she started out as an Alexa skill. 
and it was kind of a kind of a, an offshoot project with somebody kind of you know. I think of Tom Hanks with Big when he went in the room and said bugs and everybody transformed the, the buildings that turned into robots into bugs that turned into robots. Somebody went in a room and said, wouldn't it be nice if there was a skill that we could just ask, say, hey, what's the status of my environment today? Uh, and so Davis became that skill where people could you know, tie it into their, their uh, echo. And at that point, or that Alexa skill and turn around and go in, hey, Davis, you know, tell me what's going on this morning. And uh, and she would turn around and say, well, you had two issues last night. You had 672 users impacted. There was, you know, $17 million of risk revenue at risk through that issue that you happen to have. And from that, that became, you know, the vernacular we use for our AI engine now. So you, do you have like a hyper, hyper, um, uh, hyper, like turbocharged skill now, or did you, uh, kind of move away from that and just focus on your uh, your core product no we kind of that that to be honest anybody could build that skill we don't really develop mm -hmm. that skill anymore it still exists out in the aws marketplace so you could en enable davis the skill with your uh, alexa uh and and get that type uh but anything inside of dynatrace is api driven so it doesn't just have to be that if you want to turn around and and build your own app to extract the data you can do that as well so you can't, so like an executive can't walk into his office right now and be like, hey, Davis, give me a lowdown on everything and it'll give, a, it'll be like some kind of like Jarvis Iron Man thing. As it pertains, no, if, if he's got an Alexa and he's got the uh, Davis skill enabled on it, it's there. We're not uh, actively building new capabilities aside from reporting on it, but nope, it's there. Um, in fact, we've got a few executives that spoke at Perform last year that talked about how that's the first thing they do when they walk in, which is, hey, Davis, tell me what happened last night. No, oh, that's super interesting. That's like out of a sci-fi movie, right? I mean, that's that's like, um, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I saw a movie the other day, and the guy was like, had all these screens, and he's like talking to like Jarvis, but it's like Iron Man. So, anyways, okay. I'm thinking sorry, of the latest. Uh, I was thinking of the latest uh, Spider-Man, where he's got the Jarvis glasses now, and so uh, yeah, you know, if we could yeah, just yeah, get yeah. like Davis glasses, so that way you can see it all there as you're walking around. Yeah, gotcha. All right, so. Um, all right, so we talked a little bit about the, the, uh, your deterministic engine. Um, there's a couple of things that, that you've brought up in the past and where we had conversations. One is intelligence observ intelligent observability, and the other is uh, digital end user experience. So why don't you give us a little bit of highlight on those two areas? Yeah, so when we look at um, intelligent observability, um, you know, it, it's about making sure we can auto-adapt in real time. Um, I mean, the last thing your developers, when they're building new capabilities, um, you know, you're a financial services company, and um, uh, think of these online-only uh, online vendors now that don't even have a brick-and-mortar front end, although the brick-and-mortar companies are doing their best to catch up to it. Um, you know, you, you want to build new functionality for your clientele. Either that's because you want to give them more functionality or you want to draw in more clientele with new capabilities, uh, uh, portfolio, wealth management, things like that that you weren't doing before. Um, you don't want to have to turn around and think back, oh, wait a second, how am I going to track the performance of what I just – all you want to turn around and do is I've got a new widget. I need to get it out into our environment as quickly as possible. Let me get it out there. Intelligent observability should come along for the ride. It should be – to be honest, it shouldn't even be an afterthought. It's just a native capability that's transparent to the developers. 
And from that, it should then turn around. And once that new service is deployed and it starts engaging or new users start engaging with it or existing users, uh, that should automatically be discovered and mapped back to the entity model. You shouldn't have to turn around and go, okay, now that we've got this new feature out there, let me go back and stitch it back into the APM tool. Um, because if so, then, then you're not going to turn around and leverage it. On the end user side, the, the way I like to look at it is, you know, um, we've all heard that kind of phrase, you know, if a tree falls in the woods and nobody's around to hear it, did it really make a sound? I kind of, my riff on that is, okay, if a CPU spikes in the data center, but nobody's impacted by it, was it a real problem? Um, but at the same time, there's lots of problems end users have that aren't stitched back to necessarily performance problems. Um, so with that respect, we look at it from both sides. You know, the, the speeds and feeds up and the end user down uh, is the way I kind of refer to it this way. So, so while we're definitely help checking out what's happening at the metrics and logs as well as the traces side in the infrastructure, it's also understanding who's using your application, how are they using the application, and are they impacted by the performance problems that are going on? So what I mean by that is, so yeah, you've got a service slowdown, understanding who all was impacted by it, but also understanding their value back to you as a vendor. Um, we use a, a, a demo app all the time called Easy Travel. So, so think Expedia Travelocity. And of course, you know, I'm sure you're in the same boat I am. I'm very loyal to my loyalty vendors. So I've got my status with my airline partner. I've got my mm -hmm. status with my rental car partner and my hotel partner. I like to be recognized as such. So with our digital business analytics, we can discern this user has the following loyalty level with you. And if they were impacted by a performance challenge, you would want to know that and be able to proactively work with them instead of waiting for them to show up on Twitter as an unhappy customer. Uh, but at the same time, it's also understanding how well the app is achieving its business outcomes. You know, if you're SurveyMonkey, it's did you complete survey? That's their expected business outcome. Um, if you're, you're, you know, if you're Travelocity, did you book travel? But if you're 4GM and Chrysler and you're using the Car Configurator app, it's not did you buy a car from them? Because as we know in North America, you can't buy a car from them directly. You have to go, unless you're Tesla, you have to go through the dealer network. So for them, it's a measure of, did you search dealer inventory? Did you get converted to be a lead for them to pass to their dealers? And so if the application isn't effectively driving that outcome, then you've got a problem with that outcome that's not even performance related. And that's something that you want to discern. So that's digital business analytics with stitched with end user uh, analysis is vitally important to understanding the efficacy of your application and how well it's helping you meet your main goal, which for a lot of us is revenue. So are you, are you working with app developers to instrument the apps themselves, right? Because if, um, you know, if, if I'm on a mobile app, right? And this is, this is something that's been going on for year, you know, decades, right? I remember talking to my, my customers back in the early 2000s, I mean, in the, in the internet, you know, the dawn of the internet and trying to understand the, the user experience from say a, a desktop, but it could be the internet access. It could be your Wi-Fi router. It could be a lot of things that are affecting your ability, you know, it, it happens to me every single day. You know, I live in Florida, my internet, I have, we have one provider and I'm at the mercy of that provider. And I can't, you know, I can't tell sometimes whether if I'm having a zoom call, it's the other person or it's me or, or what's, or it's zoom. Right. So 
are you working like do you embed things into the applications themselves so that so the app developers that would allow them to actually measure at the mobile app or the the app that may be installed or the browser plugins or things like that Absolutely. So if it's going to be a mobile app, so iOS or iOS or Android native applications, then we'll actually give you code snippets to embed in your application so that when you turn around and pull up your device and start interacting with that application, um, you're actually, without knowing it, sending some of your telemetry data back to Dynatrace on the backside. So when I turn around and swipe up, swipe left, how long did that swipe take? When did the images become interactable? Did you have a did you have a crash? Did the app just die? Well, that information needs to get fed back to us for analysis. If it comes to a web front end, uh, we actually have JavaScript uh, uh, snippets that we put into the headers and the HTML pages that load, or the just the the, the page, web pages that load that run in the browser seamlessly behind the scenes. So the developers don't know, have to know about this. If we put our technology, our, what we call our one agent, on a web front end, an IS server, an Apache web server, then this is done automatically. If you don't own that web server so that you're not allowed to put our one agent on it, then we will give you a piece of code that you just need to embed in the HTML pages. So what happens is when I bring up that, you know, um, you know, SurveyMonkey front end, um, this is not a quick disclaimer. I don't know if they're a customer. This is not uh, presupposing they are, but just using them as an example on the discussion. Uh, so when I turn around and my browser loads up, goes to SurveyMonkey, that snippet comes along. Now I've got JavaScript running in the browser. It's actually reporting back, well, here's when the first byte showed up. Here's when the page became interactive so that I could start navigating with it, even if elements were still loading in the background. Uh, here's what I did. Here's the object I clicked on. How long did that click actually take to, to go and end, things like that? So, yeah, we're, we're actually tracking from that end user what's going on there and reporting that back so that Davis can take that into account as well as her, in her end-to-end -end data sets that she's stitching together. Yeah, that's that's really interesting, you know, because as we talk about, you know, as we talk about AI ops, right? And uh, one thing that we talk a lot about on on this this podcast and and the weekly broadcast, we have an AI ops evolution broadcast that we do weekly. As we talk about AI ops as an evolution, it's I mean, it's a it's a strategy, it's not a platform. And one of the big conversations we're having a lot is, you know, how does AI show up, right? And you can certainly look at a um, a platform for monitoring that's taking in a lot of data feeds and doing correlation, but they're more passive of bringing in data um, and third parties looking for them to bring in data. You guys are actually out, actively out there um, deploying technology to create even more rich data. So that's a, that's an interesting thing to be thinking about. So, all right. So let's um. Um, there's one thing I want to kind of bring up to you that um, you and I have had conversations about. I love for you. I, I thought it was interesting, and I think that the audience will find it interesting. This whole, the whole idea of continuous automation, and uh, I thought it was in the context of of the of the client, you know, being able to deploy continuous automation inside their environment. But I think this is continuous automation of your platform and how it delivers um, a, capabilities and new feature sets to customers and how you guys do that. So love to hear a little more about that. 
Yeah, and actually, Sonia, if I kind of step back a little bit about what led us to that, because of our old sure. platform, um, we were uh, so, so as you mentioned, Dynatrace has been around since 2005. Uh, about ten years ago now, uh, eight nine years ago now, um, we realized that you know that that was that kind of uh, machine learned uh, traditional kind of AI tool out there, which which uh, we had multiple products together trying to stitch together disparate data sets and then try to apply some knowledge and, and, and understanding around them. Um, we went uh, and realized one we need to develop a new platform. Uh, but that, so not only did we need a technology shift, we needed a cultural shift. And that cultural shift was around moving to DevOps. And so from that, we realized that we couldn't do this once every two years, I'm sorry, once every six months, a twice a year refresh cycle uh, where we turn around and give everybody a batch of code and said, here you go, go dump this back onto your, your Dynatrace environment that you installed for Atmon and uh, you'll get, you know, version two, version 2.1, patch fix 37, um, whatever the vernacular happened to be at the time. Um, so when we did this, we went to a, we stuck very closely and still do to this day to that two weeks, two week sprint methodology uh, or approach. And as such, uh, what happens is our developers are, you know, thousands of times a days are pushing code into our pipelines and having that go through all the various testings, whether that's user acceptance, performance, uh, you know, uh, security hardening, et cetera. But from that, once every two weeks, like clockwork, uh, we are actively updating globally every single one of our clusters around the world. So the continuous automation is everything from uh, on, on the end side, allowing us to turn around and tie us seamlessly into these customer environments, like you kind of when you when you uh, were prefeeding that question, it, it is about that. But it's also about turning around and continuously updating and automating the rollout of our platform, so that the end users don't have to do anything. That you know these. Um, uh, they just get the additional benefits, the speed, the, the newer, better, faster, uh, higher quality software automatically without having to lift a finger. Um, we do it every two weeks. It's actually 25 releases a year. So we give them off, we give off the end of year holiday season, depending where you are. We'll just say it's Festivus and that way we've covered everybody. And, uh, but, um, and what we're finding is that where it helped us transform the, one of the most significant transformations is that prior to that, under that old waterfall approach with the old Atmon solution, um, roughly 90% of our bugs were reported by customers in production. Um, we only were able to self-catch the production ones about 10% of the time before it impacted users. Uh, now we're down to less than 7% of our bugs that are discovered are reported by end users. We're catching 93% of them before they ever hit and within two weeks have already got fixes out there and rolled out to uh, alleviate that issue. So does um, does the customer accept these uh, updates every two weeks, or do they just automatically update? It so we do obviously because there are customers out there that are absolutely opposed to running a zero day uh, code or a you know uh, they they want to run a n minus one n minus x state, uh, so they do have that right to do that and they have no problem doing it. What's interesting though of the 
6,000 customers out there across, I forget how many thousands of clusters around the globe we have, both SaaS and on-premises clusters. Uh, the latest stat I saw last quarter was 91% of all the Dynatrace clusters around the globe are actually running the latest and greatest, which means our customers have confidence in our ability to do this and are allowing us to do it. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's uh, mm -hmm. that's higher than uh, I mean, Apple has a pretty you know substantial stat of seventy percent running you know latest version of iOS, and that's that's uh, that's pretty high. That's way outside of most vendors. So good. Hey. All right, so I think we're coming up on our time here. Uh, anything else you wanted to bring up? Anything? Any closing thoughts or things that you uh, think that uh, the audience might want to know? No, uh, really, uh, the, the questions you asked uh, helped flush out all the, the talking points I wanted to bring up today for your audience. Hopefully they found that uh, a very valuable and useful period, um, um, use of their time. And uh, if anybody does have questions, I'd love to work back um, through you and, and, uh, and talk about it with them. Good. All right, so if you want to learn more about Dynatrace, you can go to uh, www.dynatrace.com, pretty easy domain name. And uh, with that, uh, we'll we'll bring this session to an end. Russell, thanks for uh, thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I had a great conversation today. Enjoyed it, and looking forward to season two. Awesome. Thanks everybody for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you next time. Take care. Thanks for joining us in this week's episode. IT operations management is all about staying on top of the wave. Hit the like button. Tell us what you thought about this episode. Share and subscribe. And we'll see you next week on Find Flow.